Welcome to Celebrate Poe, episode 216, Manumission. All the episodes this month will deal with some of the many people and issues especially relevant to Black History Month. There were many, many historical figures uh, that I had to leave out. So instead of uh, skimming over a number of individuals, I'm going to take a closer look at a few of the most influential individuals in the struggle for equality, especially in literature. Uh, Now, uh, as of the writing of this episode, I've not decided on exactly who I wanted to delve into, I mean, because there's so many, but one figure that I do want to uh, delve into to probably more than one episode is the individual by the name of Frederick Douglass. Now, uh, of course, it's especially interesting to look at Edgar Allan Poe's approach to racial issues. Uh, he uh, he is uh, definitely not a major figure in the struggle for equality, but Poe is the subject of this podcast. And I thought it might be interesting to start off this month by looking at the time that he actually, yes, when Edgar Allan Poe actually sold a slave. Now, I was fortunate enough to get permission from a very kind individual by the name of Eben Dennis, that's E-B-E-N Dennis, who works at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore with their extensive Edgar Allan Poe collection. Uh, The Enoch Pratt Library has the original document that Poe signed in order to sell a slave. Uh, This member of the enslaved population was named Edwin, and uh, uh, was uh, his, uh, well, his name, uh, he was considered uh, the property of uh, Poe's aunt, Mariah Clem. I, I had heard about this transaction for years, but it was only in doing research for this episode that I felt I had a, a well, a basic understanding of Poe's actions regarding Mariah's slave, Edwin, and realized that the subject of manumission, the process involved, uh, well, this was an area that can really get quite confusing. Now, first, Poe was certainly familiar with slavery. Uh, The Allens were basically wealthy Southern aristocrats, and Poe grew up with uh, African-American slaves in his household. It stands to reason that stories told uh, by the African-American slaves around Poe influenced his imagination, and he may have even developed developed positive relationships with uh, some of the African-American slaves. By the way, uh, what is considered the appropriate language usage in the area of racial identity can be quite tricky. Uh, I used to work at a beautiful home uh, built by George Washington for his granddaughter, Nellie. Uh, I was was one of the guides. Actually, uh, that home, as well as the Capitol, and most of the buildings in Washington, D.C., or the the classic buildings, were built by African-American members of the enslaved population. I used that phrase. We were required to use that that term when I worked at Woodlawn. Uh, And, uh, well, uh, 
we were required to use the term African-American members of the enslaved population. Use that term routinely during chores. Until one time, an African-American professor said that the term sounded too cumbersome. He suggested to just simply use the common term slave. Well, fair enough, but there have been slaves throughout history, and I think the term African-American slave strikes a nice balance. But then again, what do I know? Anyway, uh, when Poe went to live with uh, his Aunt Mariah uh, in Baltimore in 1830, he actually sold an African-American slave using the concept of manumission. Uh, now, a little bit of explanation and background is might be necessary to understand uh, exactly what manumission is. Manumission is sometimes called enfranchisement, and it is simply the act of freeing slaves by their owners. Different approaches to manumission have developed over the centuries, uh, many of them widely different, depending on the perceived needs of a specific time and place uh, in a particular society. I was especially interested in looking at manumission in Baintimore around 1830, uh, but uh, was more than a little bit confused, so I, I asked Google Bard. It pointed out that in 1830 Baltimore, manumission referred to the legal act of setting a person, an enslaved person, free. Uh, it was a complex and often unpredictable process due to the specific laws and social context of the time. Then Google Bard proceeded to give me a breakdown, starting with the legal framework. Now, with uh, Maryland law, uh, when you had slavery uh, legal in Maryland in 1830, there were no specific state laws uh, that uh the prohibited manumission. However, it was subject to individual property rights and could be achieved through several methods. For example, you might have a will or a deed, and slaveholders could grant freedom through their will or a formal deed of emancipation. You also had, under the uh, topic of purchase of self, uh, the idea that enslaved individuals could purchase their own freedom if they earned enough or were somehow given or gifted the necessary funds. And then you have merit or service. Some slaveholders could grant, now we're talking about slaveholders, could grant freedom as a reward for exceptional service or good behavior. And finally, there were religious motivations. For example, Quaker and Methodist communities in Baltimore sometimes advocated for and facilitated manumission based on their religious beliefs. Uh, even uh, upon manumission or being freed, um, an individual might face residual restrictions such as remaining indentured servants, being barred from leaving the state, are having limitations on family relationships. And manumission could certainly divide families, and I hadn't thought about this before. You see, manumission did not always guarantee the freedom of enslaved family members. 
For example, children of an enslaved woman, for example, could remain enslaved even after their mother was freed. Uh, there was often community resistance. Uh, Anti-abolitionist sentiment remained strong in certain parts of Baltimore, and efforts to free enslaved individuals could face social and legal opposition. Uh, it's necessary to remember that manumission in Baltimore was relatively rare in 1830. While estimates vary, studies suggest that it uh, likely only involved a small percentage of enslaved individuals, and that was often through family, collect con uh, family connections or specific circumstances. And despite its limitations, manumission did contribute to a gradual decline, and this might be hard to, to get, think about this, a gradual decline in the enslaved population of Baltimore. Let me say that again. Manumission did contribute to a, a gradual decline in the enslaved population of Baltimore during the first half of the 19th century. You see, it, it also served as a part of uh, as a point of tension and debate, contributing to the glowing the growing discourse about slavery and abolition. Understanding manumission in 1830 Baltimore requires acknowledging its limitations within the context of a, a deeply entrenched institution. And of course, I'm talking about slavery. While it offered a path to freedom for some, manumission was not a uniform or guaranteed process, and the long shadow of slavery continued to shape the lives of uh, both the uh, formerly enslaved and the free. One thing I learned that the reasons for manumission were rather complex and could be quite varied. To some, manumission may present itself as a sentimental and benevolent gesture. For those working uh, as agricultural laborers or in workshops, there was little likelihood of uh, being so noticed. In other words, it was more common for older slaves to be given their freedom. However, manumission has quite a varied and very complicated history uh, back to ancient times. And uh, I wanted to concentrate for this podcast episode on African slaves in the North American colonies. Now, uh, it is true that uh, American slaves were freed in the North American colonies as early as the 17th century. Some, such as Anthony Johnson, I think this is a good example, went on to become landowners and slaveholders themselves. Slaves could sometimes arrange manumission by agreeing to purchase themselves by paying the master an agreed amount. Some masters demanded market rates. Others set a lower amount in consideration of service. Uh, the regulation of manumission began in, in uh, 1692 when Virginia established that to manumit a slave, a person must pay the cost for them to be transported out of the colony. Uh, 17, a 1723 law stated 
that slaves may not be set free upon any preference whatsoever except for some meritorious service to be adjudged and allowed by the governor and council. In some cases, a master who was drafted into the army would send a slave instead with a promise of freedom if the slave survived the war. The new government of Virginia, at that time new, repealed the laws in 1782 and declared freedom for slaves who had fought for the colonies during the American Revolutionary War of 1775 to 1783. Another law passed in 1782 that permitted masters to free their slaves of their own accord. Previously, a manumission had required obtaining consent from the state legislature, a process that was seldom successful. So, like today, controversial issues were often take a long time to pass. Now, uh, as uh, the population of free Americans increased in the United States, uh, now think uh, slaves from the northern states, the Virginia legislature, and this stuff could get really complicated, uh, passed laws forbidding them from moving. They didn't want the slaves to move into Virginia, and uh, they required newly freed slaves to leave the Commonwealth within one year unless special permission was granted. So uh, I told you this was uh, this manumission could be really complicated, and you see you see where it could a person could easily get into a bind. In the Upper South in the late 18th century, uh, planters had less need for slaves uh, because uh, these planters were switching from labor-intensive tobacco uh, with the cultivation to uh, mis- to uh, mixed crop farming. Uh, this is often given as the reason why slave states such as Virginia made it easier for slaveholders to free their slaves. In the two decades after the American Revolutionary War, so many slaveholders accomplished manumissions by deed or in wills that the proportion of free black people to the total number of black people rose from less than 1% to 10% in the Upper South. And that's quite an increase. Together with several northern states abolishing slavery during that period, the proportion of free black people nationally increased to almost uh, obviously 1.5% of the total black population. New York and New Jersey adopted gradual abolition laws that kept the free children of slaves as indentured servants into their 20s. Uh, after the uh, 17, uh, I guess it was 1793 invention of the cotton gin, which enabled the development of extensive new areas for cotton cultivation, cultivation the number of manumissions decreased because of increased demand for slave labor. In the 19th century, slave revolts such as the Haitian Revolt of uh, 1791 to 1804, and especially the 1831 rebellion led by Nat Turner, increased slaveholders' fears, and most southern states passed laws making manumission nearly impossible 
until the passage of the 1865 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. And, of course, this was after the American Civil War. In South Carolina, for example, to free a slave required permission of the state legislature. Florida law prohibited manumission altogether. Mothers were almost never manumitted alongside their children, even when the mothers gave birth to their master's own children. Enslaved people could also be freed as part of a slave owner's last will and testament. Uh, Manumission frequently involved expressions of affection on the part of the slave owner to the enslaved person as part of the rationale behind manumission. Slave owners also frequently cited a desire to die with a clear conscience as part of their reasoning for freeing their slaves. It was through this practice that George Washington was able to free his slaves after his death. Interestingly enough, this form of manumission could often be disputed by heirs claiming fraud or that uh, an enslaved person had uh, prayed, saying that they had prayed upon a relative's weak mental or physical condition. But such manumissions were usually respected by the courts, not because the courts respected the rights of enslaved people, but considered enslaved people to be part of their owner's property to distribute as they wished. Relatives who claimed fraud had to prove uh, evidence of their claims, or they would be dismissed. And conditions of ongoing servitude were sometimes placed upon the enslaved person by obligating them to care for another relative. An enslaved person could be sold in order to cover debts of the estate, but not if they had already paid a part of their purchase price towards manumission because uh, this was considered a legally binding agreement. I told you this was confusing. Uh, And as long as a person uh, had not uh, disinherited his children or spouse, a slave owner could manumit their slaves as they wished. So if you've stayed with me this far, uh, no doubt you realize the process of manumission is not as simple as it might seem at first. Uh, It wasn't just freeing an African-American slave. And I've gone through all this historical background, sometimes confusing, sometimes contradictory, and not really touched uh, or talked that much about uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Well, for that, This podcast will go back to the previously mentioned Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now, according to the website of the Baltimore Eagle, uh, the uh, Baltimore uh, Baltimore Edgar Allan Poe Society, the Enoch Pratt Free Library is Baltimore City's main public library. Among the treasures of the Pratt Library is the Amelia F. Poe collection of letters and documents relating to Edgar Allan Poe. The library has an excellent selection of books about Poe in the Poe Room on the second floor. Now, by the way, Amelia F. Poe was one of the two daughters of Edgar Allan Poe's Baltimore cousin, Nielsen Poe, and I'll be talking about him later. According to the Baltimore Sun Archives, during Poe's life, 
Baltimore was one of the largest cities in the ni- in 19th century America, and it had one of the largest urban African-American populations in the country. The city and its history also had deep-rooted issues of racism, violence, and poverty. These took some of their most bitter forms in Baltimore's har- harbor, as it was one of the most prominent ports in the United States domestic slave trade. Now, this is the historical context in which Poe sold Edwin to a Henry Ridgeway for $40,000, excuse me, $40. This really strikes me as strange, selling someone for $40. These events occurred between Poe's discharge from the United States Army in 1829 and his short-lived entry into West Point early in 1830. During that time, Edgar Allan Poe visited Baltimore, and during his stay, Poe, acting as agent for his aunt, Mariah Clem, sold her 21-year-old slave, Edwin, to one Henry Ridgway for $40. Uh, The bill of sale opened with the following statement, Know all men by these presents that I, Edgar Allan Poe, agent for Mariah Clem of Baltimore City and County and State of, Mar- State of Maryland, for and in consideration of the sum of $40 in hand, hand paid by Henry Ridgeway of Baltimore City, all or before the sealing and delivery of these presents, uh, the receipt uh whereof is hereby acknowledged, have granted, bargained, and sold, and by these uh, presents do grant, bargain, and sell under the said Henry Ridgeway, a Negro man named Edwin, aged 21 years old, on the first day of March, and to serve until he shall arrive at the age of 30 years, no longer. Now, during the 19th century, uh, a binding contract could be sealed with the mark of an X if the signer was unable to read or write. Such was the case uh, with uh, Henry Ridgway, who, according to all available records, was a free African-American huckster living near Guilford Alley, Alley and Charles Street in Baltimore. During the preparation of that document, Ridgway's name was signed for him, allowing him to place his X beside the signature as a sign of agreement. With this bill of sale, you might consider, uh, well, Poe to be uh, a participant uh, during a despicable period in in American history uh, where human beings were bought and sold like property. Uh, The document also shows how Poe tore Edwin from the human connections he had established in his life to that point. Historian Anne Bailey illustrates this well, writing that the sale of an enslaved person in this era was considered a kind of death since separation from loved ones was most often permanent. Once I I thought of uh, the fact that Poe sold a slave who would later be free, uh, less than 10 years later, as a very good thing, a, a very kind action. But after looking at the issue of manumission, I can see the potentially, the potentially cruel aspects of such a transaction. 
Now, in the next episode for Black History Month, I want to take a look at Poe's complex views regarding race as expressed in his writings, specifically The Adventures of Author Gordon Pym, The Gold Bug, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Black Cat, and his final work, Eureka, where he writes that no one soul is inferior to another, that nothing is or can be superior to any one soul. Sources include, and this episode required a great deal of research, the website of the Baltimore Edgar Allan Poe Society, uh, The Price of Freedom, Slavery and Manumission in Baltimore and Early National Maryland by T. Stephen Foley, The Free Black in Urban America, 1800 to 1850, The Shadow of the Dream by Leonard Curry, the Maryland State Archives, the Baltimore Sun Archives, The Weeping Time by Ann Bailey, and especially the special collections of the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.